Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Secret Truths, Conspiracies Exposed. I'm your co-host, Scott Patton, along with Mark Willison. Hey, Mark, how are you doing this fine day? Hey, Scott, I'm doing great. How are you doing up, up in Vancouver there? Uh, I'm doing awesome. It's not pouring rain, so we're, we're doing good. And, of course, right. you live in uh, Lake Tahoe, so it's always beautiful there. <laughs> yeah, it's either uh, beautiful sun or beautiful snow or a little in between. <laughs> so... Lake Tahoe, is that on the eastern edge of the Rocky Mountains? That is, um, we are basically, Lake Tahoe sits half and half between California and Nevada, right in, right smack dab in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, or the uh, Sierra Nevada Mountains, actually. So, but that's whole, all those mountain ranges and everything else. So, how far do you have to go before you're, like, on the plains? Um... About a hundred miles, I would say. Okay, so you're on that that uh, that edge. Yes, exactly. Okay, good. That, that's really important because I'm going to be telling you something about where you are that uh, may surprise you. Hey, all right. Later in our show, but okay. last time we were talking about NASA and uh, the the president's plan for NASA and everything else, and they were mothballing all of the shuttles and what would be happening and the Russians and everything else and. One of our listeners uh, emailed me and, and said, you know, it's all really fascinating and we've got this fascination with going to the moon and they're talking about wanting to go to the moon again. And I said, like, where did the moon come from? And, <coughs> you know, I thought, well, I, you know, it's there. Like, did it, did it come from the earth? Is that why we have these, uh, you know, huge uh, oceans? Because it, you know, there used to be land there and it just all came up. And if it did come up, how did that happen? Or was it a, a, a little planetoid that was wandering around and got caught in our um, uh, in our gravitational pull, or, or what happened? Right. So I did a little research and I wanted to share with you some uh, theories about the moon because obviously nobody really knows. Right. So any theory that explains the existence of the moon must explain the following facts. This is what we know: the moon's low density shows that it does not have a substantial iron core like the Earth does. Uh, The moon rocks contain few volatile substances like water, which implies extra baking of the lunar surface relative to that of the Earth. And I don't know about you, Mark, but every time I look at at the moon or I look at pictures of the moon, I mean, there's all these craters, right? Absolutely. My assumption was, uh, has always been, like, you know, over millennia and millions of years, you know, asteroids bang into it and cause these craters. Sure. And, of course, you know, when we look around, there's, you know, there's evidently, you know, craters along the eastern seaboard and the Gulf of Mexico, and there's a few craters here and there, but, you know, certainly not to the degree that the moon has. Of course, the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, and a lot of asteroids and stuff would hit our atmosphere and bounce away or hit our atmosphere and burn up, so that would kind of explain that. But... One of the things that's kind of curious to me is what if the craters were the uh, result of bubbling? In other words, a huge mass of heat that was occurring and you, you like lava coming up and bubble, bubble, bubble and creating craters that way. Like, sure, <laughs> absolutely. Like when the, when the bubble pops, it would, uh, you know, as it was rising, it was kind of like, a, like the bubble on a pizza, if you will. When, it, when you pop, it creates that same that same crater effect. Right. 
So this second fact is, you know, there's the implication of extra baking, which means that, you know, there could be, have been a time when there was a lot more heat going on. And, and then the third one is the relative abundance of oxygen isotopes on Earth and on the Moon are identical, which suggests the Earth and Moon formed at the same distance from the Sun. Okay. Huh. So if we and I, I haven't read this before I'm just reading this now as we're as we're talking so this is like wow so that would mean that the earth and the moon formed at the same distance of the sun so if they did form at the same distance from the sun that I mean it would be more likely they, it was one thing that formed and then split versus two I don't know or two separate things And but if it did and, and the moon is the same distance from the sun as the earth but not you know so obviously in the same orbit then uh, would one have been moving faster and then got caught up to the other one and that's how they met or would it or would it be they were together and one pulled apart anyway interesting so various theories have been proposed for the formation of the moon and um, <laughs> and so- Go ahead. Tell me what what's the I mean it seems like I remember watching something maybe History Channel something along those lines and they talk about having this this huge meteor impact on on Earth and it was so large in fact that literally you know the it, it like turned the whole planet into a, into a molten magma type of state where it was just you know the, there was so much force and so much energy that it just liquefied the planet. And that a huge blob of our planet actually ejected out of space and and created the moon in one form or another. And sometimes I see they talk about you know the the computer models show that it ejected like all these tiny fragments that that started orbiting the Earth and then they actually started coalescing and into a one large mass that became the moon. And then there's other you know I think other models that show. That it's just all one big blob that separated out, and, and I, don't, I don't really know. Yeah, well, that's one of the theories they've got here. It's called the giant impactor theory, and good memory. So right. I want to give you the fir- three uh, theories before the giant impactor theory. Okay, so and that's good. the giant theory, right? <laughs> so the first one is the fission theory. This theory proposes that the moon was once part of the Earth and somehow separated from the Earth early in the history of the solar system. The present Pacific Ocean Basin is the most popular site for the part of the Earth from which the Moon came. This theory was thought possible since the Moon's composition resembles that of the Earth's mantle and a rapidly spinning Earth could have cast off the Moon from its outer layers, particularly when it was, as you were saying, in a more molten state. However, the present-day Earth-Moon system should contain fossil evidence of this rapid spin, and it does not. Also, this hypothesis does not have a natural explanation for the extra baking of the lunar material uh, that, that we've seen. Okay, so darn, almost. <laughs> capture theory. This theory proposed that the moon was formed somewhere else in the solar system was later captured by the gravitational field of the Earth. The moon's different chemical composition could be explained if it formed elsewhere in the solar system. However, capture into the moon's present orbit is very improbable. Something would have had to slow it down by just the right amount at just the right time, and scientists are reluctant to believe in such fine-tuning. Also, this hypothesis does not have a natural explanation for the extra baking of the lunar material. Condensation theory. This theory proposes that the moon and the Earth condensed individually from the nebula that formed the solar system, with the moon formed in orbit around the Earth. However, if the moon formed in the vicinity of the Earth, 
it would have nearly the same composition. Specifically, it would possess a significant iron core, and it does not. Also, this hypothesis does not have a natural explanation for this extra baking is the problem, right? Right. So there's one theory that remains to be discussed and is widely accepted today. And this is the giant impactor theory that you were talking about. Okay. And it goes like this. Sometime, it's also called the ejected ring theory. Okay, <laughs> that's right. That's, that's what I'm, it's bringing back the memories now. <laughs> when I read the ejected ring, I'm thinking of Lord of the Rings, one <laughs> ring to rule them all. That's right. <laughs> this theory proposes that a planetismal or small planet the size of Mars struck the Earth just after the formation of the solar system, ejecting large volumes of heated material from the outer layers of both objects. A disk of orbiting material was formed, and this matter eventually stuck together to form the moon in orbit around the Earth. This theory can explain why the moon is made mostly of rock and how the rock was excessively heated. Furthermore, we see evidence in many places in the solar system that such collisions were common late in the formative stages of the solar system. And so here's a little bit more about that. In the mid-1970s, scientists proposed a giant impact scenario for the formation of the moon. So an off-center impact of a roughly Mars-sized body with a young Earth could provide Earth with its fast initial spin and eject enough debris to form the Moon. If the ejected material became, came primarily from the mantles of the Earth and the impactor, the lack of a sizable lunar core is easily understood, and the energy of the impact would account for the extra heating, you know, which basically is uh, what they noticed when they analyzed the lunar rock samples obtained by the Apollo astronauts. So for almost a decade, the giant impact theory was not believed by most scientists. However, in 84, a conference devoted to lunar origin prompted a critical comparison of the existing theories. The giant impact theory emerged from this conference with nearly, cons nearly consensus support by scientists, enhanced by new models of planet formations that suggested large impacts were actually quite common events in the late stages of terrestrial planet formation. And when you think about it, if you look at the asteroid belt, which is widely considered to be a planet that got totally smashed up, uh -huh. uh, you know, you could see that there was, you know, it was a little bit more of a ping pong type thing going on in the early stages of the solar system. So, it's, uh, you know, obviously something hit that planet and broke it into the asteroid belt, and so it's not unusual to think that something could have hit Earth, just not quite so large, right? Right, right. So the basic idea is this, about 4.45 billion years ago, a young planet Earth, a mere 50 million years old at the time, and not the solid object we know today, experienced the largest impact event of its history. Another planetary body with roughly the mass of Mars had formed nearby with an orbit that placed it on a collision course with Earth. When young Earth and this rogue body collided, the energy was like 100 million times larger than the much later event believed to have wiped out the dinosaurs. The early giant collision destroyed the rogue body, likely vaporizing the upper layer of Earth's mantle and ejected large amounts of debris into Earth's orbit and our moon formed from this debris. So there you have uh, uh, the, the theories on the creation of the moon and uh, you're reading a book on uh, called How, Who Built the Moon? Yes, Who Built the Moon? And I, I thought that was a fascinating title because, you know, I've heard you know the different the different theories that uh, that you just presented uh, on how the the, Earth, the moon came about and and for me you know like when they say who built the moon I mean that's implying like 
that this thing is, you know, put there on purpose artificially by, you know, like, you know, like who built the space station or something like that. Yeah, like right. who built the moon. And I, you know, I, I have not finished the book, but uh, but it's really interesting how they, they go through this whole proof about the life on our planet being very, very tied in with the, with the moon itself. Well, my understanding is, is if we didn't have the moon to slow down the spinning, we would have some real problems with uh, our, um, uh, you know, like we'd have hurricane force winds as normal. And oh, yeah. You'd be totally inhospitable. So we need, we, need, we need the moon. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the si- this particular size, you know, how, how large our moon is in relationship to uh, other moons in the solar system, I mean, ours is, you know, in proportion to the Earth, just massive, massive. And the distance that it's at, you know, is like this just perfect, perfect equilibrium, happy medium. And, you know, when you, earlier you were mentioning that the scientists didn't believe that that the moon could have come from outside the solar system or outside of its orbit and, and gotten into such into this, like, perfectly aligned orbit. And this book kind of gets into that a little bit and talks about, well, you know, what would life be like on this planet if if the moon were closer or if the moon were farther away or if it was not exactly the particular size that it is at the, at the specific distance. And, you know, it's it's amazing because they, they talk about the tides and how the tides, you know, really helped in the evolutionary chain of things with, you know, creating life to, to be able to come out of the oceans and mm-hmm. and to have the pools of, of water that, you know, as the tides come in and the tides the tides go out, you're left with these standing little pools of water. And, you know, if any fish or any, you know, kind of little creatures are, are inside of that water in the pool, well, either they're going to die or they're going to have to somehow make it across the land back to back to their home in the water. Mm-hmm. And it was really fascinating to, you know, to read, a, read these chapters about, you know, how how things would you know are so perfectly in tune with our moon and our and our planet that you know it's almost as if somebody you know it is there for for a specific purpose and like you said to slow down the rotation of the planet and and uh you know all of that stuff it's just like whoa i never thought about it from that kind of perspective of you know i i know that there's all these uh sun worshiping religion religions back in the you know prehistoric times and and you know I guess uh, the Mayans and other cultures you know would be would be considered to have you know had a large faith towards the sun yes. but it's and you know everybody says that, well we would have no life on this planet without the sun but I'd never heard this about the moon before that well if we didn't have the moon there would be no life and and it makes sense that uh, we uh, you know wouldn't you know, if you don't have the sun, you don't have heat and everything else. But uh, you know, it's not quite so intuitive when it comes to the moon. Right. Absolutely. So it's uh, kind of a fascinating idea to me. I'm really looking forward to see to see what theories that they actually put forth in this in this at the end of this book here that uh, that tie it into you know like who actually built the moon. I mean, I mean, I'm quite I'm about three quarters of the way through this book and. And I still haven't got there yet. It's just like, man, this is the title is such a huge tease. I'm hoping that it's uh, it lives up to its namesake. <laughs> Good. Well, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it as as we move forward. 
And, you know, we've, when we talk about the moon and its creation, we're talking about a massive catastrophic event that obviously had very good results for us um, that happened in the far distant past. And I want to bring us up to a little bit closer to the present. So from 4.45 billion years ago up to a few thousand years ago. And uh, instead of talking about the sun and, and moon, I want to talk for a little bit about um, Venus. Okay. And there's and it's interesting, and, and we may have talked about this in a previous podcast just a, a little bit earlier, but uh, for thousands and thousands of years, and probably five or six thousand years ago, uh, the civilizations of, of India, the Indian subcontinent, watched the, the sky very, very closely. And they made very, very uh, specific records of the objects in the sky that they were watching. And they knew that Mercury was there and they would they watched the sun and the, anyway the astronomers would take meticulous records and of exactly the positioning of all these different celestial objects. And there was a couple things that people noticed that were really strange. One was the year was three hundred days. Okay. Not or 360 days, I guess it was. Okay. One of the two, I forget, right? And in, how did they not notice that it was actually 365 days? Right, right. Right? The other thing was was that they had records of Mercury and the Moon and the Sun and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. But no Venus. No Venus. So huh. were they stupid? You know, <laughs> I, I don't think oh, it's so. Hard. I don't think so either. Because I mean, if you look out at the at the night sky right now, I mean, isn't Venus one of the brightest objects that you can see? Yeah, brighter than any of the stars or any other planets. It's called the morning star for a reason, right? That's right, absolutely. So the uh, you know so you know this was very very mysterious for. Uh, the scientists, the, the archaeologists, right? Because they couldn't figure this out, right? And when you think about it, you know, a lot of cultures were fanatical when it came to calendars, rewriting calendars. I mean, they had the lunar calendar, the solar calendar, uh, you know, and they would rework these calendars and everything else. And you kind of like wonder, like, why were they so concerned about all this stuff? Well, if we think about, you know, a, a, pl- a planet being smashed and becoming the asteroid belt, and we think that maybe, you know, what if uh, 3,000, 5,000 years ago, uh, and even maybe, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, the uh, solar system wasn't as peaceful as we see it today, right? Because, I mean, today you'll see maybe a little comet comes by or, you know, there might be some shooting stars, you know. Right, right. But, you know, we don't have, like, in the odd time, it's like, oh, you know, there's a very large asteroid. It's missing us by 100,000 miles, uh, you know, sort of thing. But, you know, it's not something that's every day, right? We're not being missed by 50,000 Miles, an asteroid, an asteroid doesn't miss us by 50,000 miles every day. It's just once every once in a while, right? So, yep. But what if there was a time when there was a lot more activity going on, whether we were going through a part of the 
because we rotate around the Milky Way. Maybe there's a, a part of the Milky Way where we go through where there's all this rock and stuff that's causing can cause some problems. And uh, and one of them could be you know Venus. You know maybe there wasn't Venus. Maybe it was a small comet that came by and came very close to the Earth on a number of occasions. Well, what that would do is uh, cause a lot of uh, uh, interaction and pressure and, and you know there'd be the gravitational pull and what we've seen is and, and basically cause a lot of havoc right oh absolutely you absolutely know, if you had Venus right beside us they're about the same size it'd cause a lot of havoc so um, one of the results of that would be I'm just trying to think of where I want to go to first well, let's first of all, let's just talk about changes that would happen, right? Like the North Pole was not always the North Pole. Absolutely, we know that uh, planet's gone through many many pole changes. That's and, right. That's and, right. So, and how does that happen? Yeah, how, yeah. Like, what could cause that to happen? Probably on Earth, nothing, right? Right. Yeah, it would, it would have to be some some sort of an external. Thing that force that was going on that you know would be able to, I mean I, that just seems incredible to me because I don't know if you've ever played with like two magnets and you put them together and they can only go together one way and and if you were like put them together the wrong direction one of the magnets always wants to tend to flip over and and connect you know north to south with the other magnet. That's right. And to think about our planet how it would you know how it could literally flip over like that knowing how, what kind of force it takes with a little magnet you know it seemed like to me. To get it to go from one direction all the way opposite to the other side would, I mean, that would take a serious force. That's right. So when you have rock that's liquefied, in other words, it's like lava, it's non-magnetic. But as okay. it cools to about 580 degrees centigrade, it acquires the magnetic state and orientation of the magnetic field of the Earth. So once it solidifies, lava rock retains that magnetic property. And it doesn't matter if you break the rock off and you change the orientation of the Earth or anything else. It's always the same. So everywhere on the planet, rock formations are found with reversed polarization. In fact, they call it paleomagnetism, like paleontology, right? Right. And every month they're detecting more areas of inverted uh, orientation. So... Uh, basically, it means that the poles have reversed itself many times. And there's no known mechanical or electromagnetic effect can cause a reversal of magnetization over such an area. And what's even more puzzling is that the rocks with inverted polarity are much more strongly magnetized than could be accounted by the Earth's magnetic field. Okay? okay. So the power of the magnetism in the rock is more than than the Earth's magnetic field could create. So, um, Interesting. So it had to have some sort of a, an additional magnetic field then. That's right. And it's not just a little bit. It's magnetically charged 10 times and sometimes up to 100 times stronger than it would have been by the Earth. Wow. Yeah. So this is a huge puzzle 
The cause of the reversal of the magnetic field in the rocks is unknown, and the fact contradicts every cosmological theory. The strength of the magnetization of the rocks with inverted polarity is astonishing. Now, if something like Venus flew by, you know, and caused a whole, you know, because something like that would cause tons of volcanoes to start erupting, right? I mean, you'd be shaking and everything else, and the Earth would be cracking, and you'd have all this magna from the center of the Earth coming up or, you know, and shooting up, and there's, there's evidence of, well, and this was actually, so this was actually the part that I, reason that I brought up where you are, okay? Okay. Um, and that is, and I think I lost it, the... Um, The area that you're in has hundreds and hundreds, sorry, thousands and thousands of feet of lava. So basically, it was that whole area you're in for thousands of miles north, thousands of miles south, and thousands of miles east was flowing with lava that was flowing at about 40 miles an hour at its peak. Okay. And it's thousands of miles thick. So just right. in, okay, so just imagine molten lava, thousands of feet thick. Like, what would have to be happening for that to happen where you're at? It would. I mean, that's the only. I can't even imagine a volcano. No, it's not, a, could it's do not that. a not a volcano at all. Like, it's just right. like the end of the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's certain. Um, rivers and stuff that have cut through the lava and they've gone down a couple thousand feet and still not got to the bottom of it. So there was huge catastrophes that were occurring and it, and if you've got that type of catastrophe happening on the planet where we know there's thousands of feet of lava, then uh, you've, it's not so hard to imagine that you know, the magnetic field is flipping back and forth, going nuts, and uh, and probably the gravitational force that's being put on the planet Earth to cause those problems probably means that there's extra magnetic forces around that are adding to uh, to the to the lava when it cools down, right? Sure, sure. And so, uh, and 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 the, the, the amazing thing about this is that it's beginning to look like it all happened within the last five thousand years. Really? Lots of. That seems like an incredibly short time. I mean, that's within recorded history, right? You would think so. Well, and actually, if you think of uh, of the Old Testament and um, the Exodus and and all the problems that were going on in Egypt, it may be that uh, that there's a connection there because you know what caused the Red Sea to part, what caused you know the the uh, the rumblings. Uh, all those sort of things, right? Yeah, and that's a, that's a good point. Most most of the scientific community the community just takes those as stories and and uh, you know fables. Basically, they don't really give it give it too much credibility. They think, well, how could you part the Red Sea? I mean, come on now. That's, but that's right. a good that's a good point. I had no, I had not thought of that. Yeah, yeah, and and it gets. Um, it gets better. Okay. <laughs> because the um, the way our oceans are, if you if you go to the uh, 
if you go to the bottom of the ocean on the Atlantic, for example, or the Pacific, it becomes harder and harder to see the ocean floor because the sediment just kind of floats down there and and because there's not a lot of currents or activity when you're three miles down, as you can imagine, it just sort of stays the same, right? Sure. So what they expect when they go to the bottom of the ocean is this murkiness and it gets murkier and murkier because all this sediment is just kind of floating there, right? Okay. And it's caused a lot of problems because there are sections of of the ocean floor that are crystal clear. Oh, weird. Yeah, so that means that there hasn't been 10,000 years as a number, I don't know if that's the exact number, for the sediment to start settling. Right? Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. so if you had an island and you dropped it down three miles and now it's on the bottom of the floor, the ocean, beside it would be, you know, thousand feet of sediment, murky water, and where it is would be clear because there's been no time for the murkiness to be acquired, right? Okay, right. So they found this over the uh, in the Atlantic. They found this in the Pacific, and they found this in the Indian Ocean. So the th- basically, what that's saying is, is that there was a time when parts of the Pacific, Atlantic, and Indian Ocean were land. Okay. And if you go to places like the Himalayas and the Alps and the Rockies, and you look up, uh, you, you do the, what the scientists do and the archaeologists do, uh, they find sand and they find seashells. Sure. And so, you know, 12,000 feet above sea level, you have seashells. Oh, really? Yeah, so that would suggest that that the, the land, mountains were underwater. We were underwater. So we have this thing where what was land was seabed, what was seabed was land, and vice versa. We also have uh, lots of examples where the different layers of the crust of the earth, as you can imagine, have different ages, right? Okay. And the older age is on top of the younger age. Huh. So in other words, the crust is slipped over. Right. Right. And well, is, that, is that due to, is that from like the tectonic, you know, from subversion, from the tecton- one tectonic plate uh, riding up over another one? Um, not likely. Okay. Because that's a very slow process, and this is probably a very fast process. Gotcha, gotcha. So, but if you can imagine, you know, thousands of square miles with thousands of feet deep lava where you are, right? So right. basically, for that to happen, you basically have to crack the earth like an egg, right? Okay. And the lava would be flowing out and everything else. Well, with if you've got that amount of activity and energy, what are the chances that you know, maybe some of that land that got cracked flipped over? Possible. Certainly, probably, uh, yeah, it's, uh, absolutely. Probably pretty good. So yeah. We're... Uh, okay, so I just want to read this part. I was looking for it a little earlier on the, the sediment. Uh, it is regarded as an accepted truth in geology that the seas have not changed their beds with the exception of encroachment by shallow water on depressed continents. Thus, it was difficult to accept the startling conclusion that the bottom of the ocean was at t- some time in the past dry land. 
But there was another surprise in store for the expedition. This was an expedition that went to, uh, to, um, to find out things at the bottom of the Atlantic. Okay. The thickness of the sediment on the ocean bottom was measured by the well-developed method of sound echoes. An explosion is set off, and the time it takes for the echo to return from the sediment on the floor of the ocean is compared to the time required for a second echo to return from the bottom of the sediment or from the bedrock or granite. These sure. measurements clearly indicate thousands of feet of sediments on the foothills of this ridge. And this is the big uh, mid-Atlantic ridge. Surprisingly, however, we have found that in the great flat basins on either side of the ridge, this sediment appears to be less than 100 feet thick. Hmm. A fact so startling. Actually, the echoes arrived almost simultaneously, and the most that could be attributed to such circumstances to the sediment was less than 100 feet of thickness of the margin of error. Always has been thought that the sediment must be extremely thick since it has been accumulated for countless ages. But on the level basins that flank the mid-Atlantic ridge are signals reflected from the bottom mud and from the bedrock too close to measure the time between them. The absence of thick sediment on the level floor presents another one of the many scientific riddles our expedition found. It indicates that the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean on both sides of the ridges was only very recently formed. At the same time, on the flanks of the ridge, the layers of sediment in some places are thousands of feet thick as expected. These ocean bottom sediments we measured are formed from the shells and skeletons of countless small sea creatures and from volcanic dust and wind-blown soil drifting out over the seas and from the ashes of burnt-out meteors and cosmic dust. Burnt-out meteors and cosmic dust elicit the question, if the meteor dust in our age is so sparse that it can be hardly detected on the snow of high mountains, how could ashes of burnt-out meteors and cosmic dust make up a substantial part of the oceanic sediment? <laughs> how, could it all be, how could it be that all other sources, including uh, stuff carried by rivers, have created in all ages since the beginning a sediment of only moderate thickness? That is, that is fascinating. Yeah. So um, I have never heard any of that before. What's what's the link to that website? Well, it's actually a book by Velikovsky. Oh, okay. And I believe it's called uh, Ages in Chaos. Ages in Chaos, and yeah. he's and he wrote another another book, right? Called uh, Planets in Collision. Is that that's something like that? Yeah. Worlds in Worlds in Collision. That's right. Yeah. So, and you have to understand too that he started writing, printing his uh, books in the 1950s, and he was attacked mercilessly. And in the mid 60s, a number of his uh, predictions, theories were proved to be true. And in the 70s, some more were proved to be true. And in the 80s, some more were proved to be true. Nothing <laughs> he's written, he's never revised his book except to add to the preface that he's never had to revise his book because some piece of information came out that contradicted what he wrote. Mm. And his theory was was that Venus came either right by Jupiter or from Jupiter, and it came close to the planet twice, and it, over a 50, first time and then 52 years later the second time, and uh, caused a lot of havoc. And stuff in the Exodus was... Uh, a lot of that was caused by Venus being close. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. And uh, when you've got a planet that close, there's a lot of electromagnetic, some lightning and all that sort of stuff going on. Sure. And, and huge, um, you'd be constant earthquakes and volcanoes would be 
coming up and, and there would be a huge stretch uh, or stress on the planet. And oh, absolutely. That the Andes came up during that period of time, which is very, very, you know, 3,500 hmm. years ago, 5,000 years ago, right? And this expedition to the uh, bottom of uh, the Atlantic Ocean dredged up rocks of in igneous or fire-made type, in other words, lava, from the sides and tops of peaks of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which indicated that submarine volcanoes and lava flows had been active there. Probably the whole ridge is highly volcanic, and perhaps thousands of lava outpourings and active extinct cones scattered along its entire length. But not only is the ridge volcanic, there are many peaks of volcanic origin scattered over the Atlantic Basin. In you know where the Azores they found uncharted submarine mountains that's 8,000 feet high with many layers of volcanic ash, and then they found a great hole dropping down 10,800 feet as if a volcano had caved in at some time in the past. So water lava flowed over the water of the oceans, and the water must have boiled. Meteorites, ashes, and cosmic dust fell from the sky. Well, you can imagine if. You've got Venus and Earth, and they're really close and, and shaken and everything else. There must be a whole pile of stuff coming along with that, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you can think, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, what the what the moon's pull on the Earth does, um, a planet that's actually the size and mass of our own, in a, in a close by, you know, that's close by is, would really shake things up. That's right. So here's something else that just kind of blow your mind. From the abyss of the oceans, rocks marked with deep scratches were raised by the expedition. So at, from a depth of uh, 3,600 feet, we, they found rocks that tell an interesting story about the past history of the Atlantic Ocean. Granite and sedimentary rocks of types which originally must have been part of a continent. Most of the rocks that we dredged here were rounded and marked with deep scratches. Uh, such marks on rocks are regularly ascribed to the action of glaciers that held rocks in a firm grip and moved over them and over the surface of other rocks. But we also found some loosely consolidated mud stones so soft and weak they could not have held together in the iron grip of a glacier. How they got out here is another riddle. So, uh, you know, we have Plato saying that there was this great continent called Atlantis that fell into the ocean. Right. And here we have these scientists saying, we have evidence of what had to be a continent that at one point in time had it was in the Ice Age and had a glacier on top of it. <laughs> and it's 3,600 feet below sea level. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Just goes to show what, uh, how, how much we don't know still. That's, well, and, you know, it's, it's just these catastrophes and things that happen cause massive changes in the... Uh, in the planet, and um, and it, and it's just and it's just really interesting to me that you know we live in this very peaceful environment when you think about it, right? We have the odd hurricane, we have the odd tornado, we have the odd typhoon. You know, there's a little bit of drought here, it's a little too wet there. Uh, you know, but, right. but really, uh, you know, we don't have. Uh, you know, a hundred thousand volcanoes going off at the same time, right? <laughs> and, and we don't have uh, masses of water shifting and everything else because, like, if you had um, Venus c 
come close to earth. What, you know, think of the, t- you'd mentioned this already, we have tides, right, caused by the moon. Sure. So the, I don't know how much smaller the moon is than the earth, but, you know, let's just say all of a sudden the moon is ten times bigger. You know, all of a sudden our tides are ten times bigger. Right, right. So, you know, I don't know, does that mean the tide, instead of being 20 feet, is 200, 300 feet? I mean, that could be pretty disruptive, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, all your coastland would have been uh, been getting just bashed and yeah, battered by these by these waves. Yeah. So you know, so now all of a sudden the Red Sea is you know opening up doesn't seem such a crazy thing, right? <laughs> Not so far fetched anymore, huh? You know, and you know, and maybe uh, and the other part of it too is is that if you had two planets that are back, but you know, because Venus is approximately the same size as the Earth. Uh-huh. Uh, what impact does that have on the rotation? Oh, it'd be huge. I mean, wouldn't they be basically pulling on each other? You'd be stopped you'd be, because we already said the moon slows the rotation of the Earth down, so that it's right. habitable for us. So all of a sudden, right. you have something ten times bigger, or twenty times bigger, or whatever it is, it would slow. You know, so you have the um, the story of I think it's Jericho where. He said, you know, the sun will not move, and it didn't move, right? Hmm. So, well, maybe that was because there's this thing, Venus, this Venus thing going on, right? And so you start looking at our legends and and, uh, the Old Testament and our old uh, stories, which, like you said, we were thinking of them as fables and everything else, and like, what if they're the best description that those people could make given that they didn't know what they were talking about, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, we we talk about things in our language, they talked about it in their language, now we're translating it, we don't think they knew anything about spaceships and Mars and planets (laughs) and all, you know, (laughs) all that. Right, right. And so we translate it a certain way and it's like well you know maybe they did or even if they didn't maybe they were describing like if you didn't know what a plane was and never seen a plane and everything else and you looked up and you saw a plane what would you describe how would you describe it it would only have to be a, the only thing it could be is a giant bird right yeah or it's or and it's got the exhaust coming out so maybe it was a cloud right yeah. <laughs> a weird looking cloud right that's so right they described it as best they could so anyway the I just think it's absolutely fascinating when we look at, uh, at um, you know, the, the impact of the planets and the moon and, and uh, you know, what maybe what could have happened. I mean, I think the biggest problem we have is we've always thought that, aside from the meteorite that hit, that blew the dinosaurs, that we've had really very little in the way of massive cosmic catastrophes. And, and maybe we've had more than we thought and it's caused more changes. And uh, You know, because face it, if, if the planet right now turned inside out and upside down and you had a thousand feet of, of uh, lava go over New York, how much would be left, right? Absolutely none of you it. <laughs> and so 5,000 years from now, we're, you know, we got our sheep and everything else and we're seeing... You know the top of the, <laughs> of uh, you know the Statue of Liberty popping out. We think, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. It's not possible that there was any other civilizations here before us. And hmm. uh, you know this. So this may be, you know, maybe we've had thousands of years of, or tens of thousands of years of other civilizations, 
and uh, and we don't know about it because they're under a thousand feet of lava, or they're in the Antarctic, which you know was ice covered once. Right, and maybe they're even still there. You know, maybe they're you know you hear about these massive. Um, you know, natural cave formations and huge volcanic tubes that uh, you know the the magma passed through you know in the past and and you know it's you know who knows who knows exactly what's you know what what happened in the past and what's even going on now that we're maybe just unaware of. Yep, that's right. Huh. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So I recommend everyone get. Uh, Belikovsky's books and start reading them because they're absolutely fascinating in in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely have to check that out. And uh, you know, it's been I don't know as a little side note. Uh, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news lately, but I have just you know with Obama's big um, space summit that's coming up here, man. I have seen a huge amount about the Apollo missions and all kinds of news and about you know space is like the number one topic on the news again right now. And so I, you know, it's going to be interesting to see in a couple of days here exactly what happens with that. And, you know, gosh, I would, I sure hope that, uh, that there's an announcement that we're coming, you know, that we're going to actually try and dig into some of these, some of these bigger mysteries that, uh, you know, Venus and the moon and our own planet and our own history. And it's like, you know, I think that's, I'm just really, really hopeful and excited right now that, uh, that this announcement is going to be meaningful and, and and on a scale of you know maybe maybe like we had back in the 60s. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All the stuff that we've learned so far from from the program, uh, I, I think I think it's time to take it to the next level and re-engage again. Me too. Let's do that. Yeah. Well, we will uh, check back. You know, we'll we'll keep an eye out. Um, you know, for what's co- what's coming up in the next couple of days here, and we'll keep you posted and and uh, updated on next week's show, and let you know let you know all the big exciting news and where it's heading and and what's uh, what's coming down the pike. Awesome. So, uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. Here's the exposed. Head over to secrettruth.com and leave your comments. Let us know what you think. Share. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.